This is R.J. Rushdoony, Easy Chair Number 31, November 8, 1982. Well, the election was last week, and I'm not interested in commenting on the election. There are able commentators on that sort of thing elsewhere. What I do want to comment about is the uh, political campaigning. At least here in California, some of the political campaigning really uh, bordered on what was once slanderous and libelous. The candidates, sometimes on both sides, used tactics that were designed to appeal to emotions that impugned the character of peoples, and generally made the campaign thoroughly distasteful. I think the uh, U.S. Supreme Court is in part to blame for that. Some of the protection against libel and slander has been diminished in the past generation, in particular where a public personality is concerned. And I believe we're going to see a steadily worsening picture here. The cleaning up of statements about public and private figures was a slow and lengthy process and an important legal landmark. Let me illustrate. Let's go back to the time of the Reformation. When the Reformation began, the language used by all sides was vicious and ugly. It was commonplace in that day. So while Luther's language stands out because he is more read today than any of his opponents, Luther's language was not unusual. It was commonplace. What you did if you were carrying on a debate was to impugn the motives and character of your opponent. And you did it without any conscience, really. So the situation was very bad at that time because the Catholic, Anabaptist, and Lutheran uh, leaders, as they argued back and forth, used very intemperate language. Sometimes the language was uh, extremely bad in that they appealed to every kind of baser motive and prejudice imaginable to arouse people against their opponent. It really was horrifying language. Now, there was one exception, and that was Calvin. Sometimes, in terms of present-day standards, his language seems a bit strong. But by and large, Calvin's language was more restrained than anyone else's. Now, there was a reason for this, and it wasn't because Calvin was morally a superior person, although he was a fine man, than uh, his Catholic, Anabaptist, and uh, other opponents. I might say that Calvin did use sometimes unfair argumentation against the Anabaptists. He did it because Calvin disliked them. Calvin had a somewhat aristocratic temperament, and the Anabaptists did not appeal to him. They were very low class in the level of their thinking, their background, their education, and so on. But apart from that, Calvin, by and large, used much more careful language. And the reason for it was that unlike the others, Calvin was trained in law. Now this gave to Calvin a precision in his language that you do not find in most of the contemporary thinkers. So we have to ascribe Calvin's superiority here to a great degree to his legal training. And it was the uh, gradual triumph of this legal temperament in Western civilization that led to a great many improvements. 
because this legal temperament combined with Christian faith led to very extensive reforms. What has happened in the past generation is that substantive matters in law have been discarded and technicalities have triumphed. And as a result, there is now the wrong kind of precisionism in law, one which is destructive of meaning. And the result is it is corrupting many of our laws, such as those that deal with libel and slander. So one of the great victories of Western civilization, the victory of lawyers, whereby they ended what, to use the biblical term, uh, was tail-bearing, uh, slander, libel, forbidden by Scripture and step-by-step step forbidden by law. It was an important victory. That victory now has been very seriously endangered. Now to uh, go to another matter, and by the way, let me say that uh, one of the problems that made it easy to be libelous at the time of the Reformation was that there was a great deal of ignorance on every side. The printing of the Bible helped remedy that. But the kind of thing that passed as biblical was amazing. For example, let me cite this sentence, which was very important to a group of um, proto-Anabaptists and was ostensibly an important sentence of Scripture and was cited as such by common people. I quote, I wish my bride to be naked and do not wish for her to be wearing her gown, unquote. <laughs> That was assumed to be a good sentence out of the Bible and given all kinds of uh, allegorical and symbolic meanings. The sad fact, by the way, is that there's a like ignorance concerning the Bible today. The Bible is still the bestseller, as it was a generation ago, but it is so often bought and given to people as a present, and then it sits on the shelf. I know that a pastor friend had a woman, not a parishioner, uh, call him and say she wanted to know where because she wanted to use the verse in a discussion or a talk she was preparing for some woman's group. The... Uh, quotation in the Bible could be found, honesty is the best policy. Well, she was promptly told that was not in the Bible. That came from Benjamin Franklin, who had borrowed it from others. And uh, her response was to say, well, obviously you don't know your Bible and you're not willing to check on the source. A few years ago in Washington, I encountered a very high-ranking bureaucrat who quoted, and I won't quote it because it's not a very good sentence, a supposed sentence from the Bible. This supposed sentence justified the use of prostitutes under certain circumstances. And he was very insistent that that was in the Bible. Well, he obviously knew nothing about the Bible. The ignorance is there yesterday and today. In fact, I, as a student, had a professor, a pragmatic naturalist in the philosophy department, cite uh, John 1, and the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and so on as Genesis 1.1. And he gave a long discourse on how uh, this 
indicated uh, a Hellenic perspective, which indicated that uh, Genesis 1 did not have an early date because there were obvious marks of Greek philosophy there, including the word logos. When I went up and corrected him afterwards, he just smiled patronizingly and said that uh, I had better check the Bible on this. Well, that's the kind of ignorance that does prevail. Well, now to go on to something else. Dr. Colin Cooper passed on to me a very important article from Engineering and Society, which is published by the California Institute of Technology, and this is from the April 1981 issue. It's an exceptionally good article by Dr. Eleanor M. Searle, S-E-A-R-L-E, Woman and Marriage in Medieval Society. Now, in four pages, or no, it's not that much, three pages, Dr. Searle says more about medieval society, women and marriage, than you can find in books of 500 to 1,000 pages. As a matter of fact, she begins by speaking critically of Dr. Lawrence Stone, who is uh, educated at Oxford and is currently, after having taught at uh, Oxford, at Princeton University and holds a very important position there. He is the author of The Family, Sex, and Marriage in England, 1500 to 1800, published in 1977. It's a book of, I suspect, 800 pages. Yes, exactly, 800. <laughs> and uh, it's full of all kinds of curious bits of information. So uh, Dr. Stone, obviously, is a very meticulous and competent researcher, but it's a book also without any insight. So the book is interesting reading if you like a great deal of curious data. But if you want to know something about the family, sex, and marriage from 1500 to 1800 in England, you learn next to nothing. On the other hand, Dr. Searle, in three pages, tells us far more than Dr. Stone and others have in massive volumes. Well, I'd like to give you a summary of it because it is very important. She cites the view of Professor Stone and others that the feudal and medieval eras were times in which children were bartered like cattle. And uh, Dr. Searles says, indeed, medieval children were often, perhaps normally, especially if they were of better families, betrothed in infancy. Their betrothal was binding unless at the age of 14 one or the other of the children repudiated it. Moreover, such uh, betrothal contracts uh, very commonly carried specific nominations of second, third, and fourth choice partners on the assumption that one or the other might die or might reject the choice. Moreover, uh, as Dr. Stone of Princeton and Oxford has said, women were supposedly also bartered like cattle. And a widow fell into her lord's hands, and the crown very often told uh, the woman or widow whom she could marry, for example, Henry II of England in the late 12th century once accepted a large bride from a 93-year-old countess, 93 years old, that she be not made to marry any more. 
very often, if, as in the case of the Countess of Warwick, a young widow who held an important castle in her own right, when she dared to remarry without license, the sheriff was commanded to confiscate all her lands and to keep the couple from cohabiting. So, this sounds as though uh, Professor Stone and others like him are right. But, says Dr. Searle, and I quote, more than one of these assumptions needs challenging. First, that the family in Europe has always been patriarchal until the present one, that is, ruled by an authoritarian father. And second, that it hadn't in the Middle Ages dawned upon men and women that all this represented an outrageous tyranny, and that better institutions could have been adopted whenever they liked. This last is particularly dangerous, I think, because it provides a false historiography to women of their traditional treatment, and that is not healthy for a political uh, movement." Unquote. She goes on to say that medieval land tenure began in interdependence, and inheritance and admittance uh, and recruitment were all important and very strongly regulated by custom and family law. The courts themselves held strongly to the general principle of the family's claims. Now, she says, and I quote, if in this set it is in this setting that the control of women's marriages can be seen to perform a function vital to the group. The medieval marriage involved the transfer of property to the new couple by their parents. It involved an act of inheritance. And in courts, that sought merit as the criterion of acceptability. Strong property rights for women were an important asset. Any medieval girl, thus, was a potential heiress as well as the recipient of a dowry at her marriage. These strong principles of property rights played an important part in recruitment to the group. Marriages functioned as strengtheners of the bonds between a lord and his vassal. Endogamy, marriage within a group, and lordship go together. No lord would want to permit his lands to go with a girl into another man's lordship without compensation. Unquote. Then Dr. Searle points out women were called peace weavers, not in sentimentality, because a woman's property rights wove the group together with considerable strength and complexity. To continue quoting, in this way it could and frequently did happen that women acted as the channel of family inheritance, even when they had living brothers. Nor was this perceived as tyranny, either on the part of a father or of a lord, because agreements that clearly disinherit boys are specifically done by the lord at the request and with the advice of his court. Unquote. In other words, if the daughter were more competent, the sons could be disinherited. And the girl and her husband made the heir. So it made it important to control her marriage. Uh, and so, uh, she continues, and I quote, An able girl might be outfitted with an able husband and preferred to an untrusted or insignificant brother. The formidable girl, Amabel of Belaim in Normandy, inherited in preference to two brothers, she was given in marriage to the great war leader, Robert of Montgomery. But she herself, beside having nine children, rode always with one hundred armed retainers, made war, and died at last, age twenty-nine, by the sword. Now that, <laughs> that was a woman. <laughs> Here's another example that Dr. Searle quotes, and I quote again an account of the rebellion of Eustace of Ratoul against the Duke of Normandy about the year 1100, 
shows Eustace guarding one castle and his wife another that had been her dowry. After a long siege, during which she used the crossbow to great effect from the castle walls, she was forced to surrender. But though she negotiated terms for her several hundred men, she scorned them for herself. She leapt from the walls and fell, though somewhat shamefully with bare buttocks, into the depths of the moat. This happened in the third week of February. But she had arranged secretly for a horse, and while the army laughed, she surprised them by scrambling out and galloping safely off to join Eustace to give him a first-hand account, as the chronicler tells us, unquote. Well, Dr. Searle says, instead of it being a bartering of children like cattle, it was a part of the group's care for children. It was an insurance policy. Now, widows with property, if they were too old to manage it, were married to younger men who could. Uh, and so she says, and I quote, the alternative would have been parting from one's property. The 93-year-old countess who would marry no more could have retired earlier. Her great-grandson simply took over all her property when she did. Until 93, she preferred to be in the fray, unquote. So, as she says, women then were little, if any more, controlled than their brothers. They were responsible members of society, very, very capable, and anything but the poor, helpless creatures who were bartered like cattle that some scholars like Stone feel they were. <laughs> I think that's a delightful aspect of history. Now to turn to a radically different subject, a book published this year, 1982. And the publisher is William Morrow and Company in New York. The author is David McClintick. Indecent Exposure, a true story of Hollywood and Wall Street. The book is intensely interesting. I'm not recommending it to you, but it was important for me because this was a subject for two or three reasons I won't go into, I was very keenly interested in because I had an indirect contact with uh, some aspects of it. Well, you may recall from the newspapers the entire story or portions of it. In 1977, uh, David Begelman, uh, studio leader, in fact, at Columbia, uh, was found to have forged Cliff Robertson's name on a $10,000 check. The fact came up when Robertson got a notice from the IRS that he had not paid taxes on that amount. He investigated the fact and found that he had never received any such check Moreover, a check made out to him had been, in fact, uh, made out by Columbia Studios at the order of Bagelman and signed by Bagelman with Robertson's name and then cashed by Bagelman. But Robertson had trouble getting anyone to do anything about this. One man alone... Alan Hirschfield, the president and chief executive officer of Columbia Pictures Industries, who had come from Wall Street four years earlier and had been instrumental in rescuing the company from financial disaster and making it the best studio during his tenure in Hollywood. Hirschfield alone showed interest in pursuing the matter. Well, what happened was amazing. Hirschfield did turn up other instances of a like embezzlement. 
But the net result was that Hirschfield's own job then fell into jeopardy because the board of directors, or a majority of the board of directors, turned against Hirschfield savagely. Now, the board of directors was made up of investment bankers and Wall Street, and they strongly opposed everything he did. Bagelman was fired by Hirschfield and then compelled to take him back. Evidence subsequently was produced which seemed to indicate that Bagelman had a pattern of this before he ever went to Columbia that he had uh, had to resign under fire from an insurance company and the data concerning his resignation was hushed up, that Judy Garland, whom he had worked with uh, and who had trusted Begelman, had apparently been similarly used, and so on and on. Now, the facts were hushed up. The report that was released to the public was that it was an error in judgment, a case of uh, poor judgment on Bagelman's part in the use of discretionary funds. Moreover, most people in Hollywood, as well as in Wall Street, rallied to the side of Bagelman against Hirschfield, and the attack was so intensified that attempts were made to show that Hirschfield had a conflict of interest, because his wife at one time had been associated with a company that had done business with Columbia. That charge, of course, was fantastic. There was not a shred of evidence to it. The psychiatric defense was very heavily used, and the gist of it was that uh, Fagelman had a compulsion to destroy himself because he lacked self-respect. Every time he became successful, he had to do something to destroy it. He was placed under psychiatric care by the board and everything done to protect him. Now, the net result of it was that only because some elements in the press after a couple of years picked up the story and played it up, New York Magazine, uh, Washington Post, the New York Times, and Esquire, because it was a rather hot story, something was finally done. And Vagelman was taken to court. He was given a suspended sentence, put on probation for three years, and the probation time subsequently reduced. The net result was that the real loser was not Bagelman, who's done very well since then, but Hirschfield. He has since uh, gained a position with another studio, but the kind of corruption that is revealed by McClintock in his book is, as he calls it, the corruption of power and arrogance. The feeling of people in high places that they can do as they please. And he says, Hollywood is rife with corruption, all right, but the occasional embezzlement, fraud, cheating, and chiseling, as serious as they are, constitute symptoms of a more pervasive and subtle corruption, a corruption that is more difficult to combat than outright theft. It is the corruption of tremendous power, of the control of all kinds of funds, and so on. The police, by the way, do not come out very well, nor the 
state agencies. The only uh, interest in the, uh, on the part of the police was on the part of a woman police officer who felt this was a chance to show that she could do well. But the police only came in when there was so much publicity it was embarrassing to stay out of it. Moreover, the interesting fact is that with all of this exploding around them after their cover-ups had failed, the attitude of the investment bankers was this. Have, and I quote, having calculated incorrectly around the first of the year that the press coverage would, as Ray Stark had put it, blow over in two weeks, Herbert Allen, that is, and most of the other Columbia directors eventually had seized upon a new and equally superficial appraisal of their dilemma. We have a PR problem. The solution, obvious. Hire a public relations firm. Now, this is the thing that is so important in this book, because here is a moral crisis. Hirschfeld sees it as a moral crisis, and everyone works to beat him down on that fact. They refuse to see it as a moral crisis. They're indignant that he views it in moral terms, because to them that's irrelevant. It's a trifle. It does make you wonder about these investment bankers and their morality. The comment of uh, entertainment columnist James Bacon in the Los Angeles Herald-Examiner after the New York Times and New York Post and the Washington Post stories is interesting, and I quote, The Washington Post apparently is incensed because the Hollywood trade press never used the word embezzlement. There is a reason for that. Embezzlement is not a sin in Hollywood. It's a way of life. I once asked a well-known Hollywood producer who has never made a picture for less than $10 million if he wouldn't be happier if he were making $1 million pictures. Less headaches and all that, his answer. You can't steal $1 million from a $1 million picture. Hollywood, for all its prestigious industry awards, which one segment of the industry gives to another and vice versa, is really the greatest concentration of con artists in the world, unquote. Now, I could go on and uh, quote more from this. It's a very telling account, but I think the point is clear. The moral issue was at all times the issue that was sent, uh, not, uh, avoided. And as McClintock said, uh, everyone in Wall Street and Hollywood had a common goal, and I quote, to apply pressure to Alan Hirschfield. And though Hirschfield saw and felt it, he still did not fathom it. He hadn't forged the checks. Bagelman had. He hadn't embezzled thousands of dollars from Columbia Pictures. Bagelman had. He wasn't a criminal. Bagelman was. And yet the focus of attention seemed to be shifting from Bagelman to Hirschfield. No one seemed to care what Bagelman had done. They only seemed intent on impugning Hirschfield's motives, unquote. Exactly. That's the point. Well, perhaps it's more flagrant in Hollywood, but I think it's a part of the contemporary American scene and the world scene. I could cite instances of like exposures in the church and the people who've made the exposure are the ones who have suffered. Not too long ago, a priest told me that because of something he had exposed, he was under fire. 
and very serious exposure. And everything had been done to hush it up. Moreover, in another case, ultra-fundamental, one of the biggest churches in this country, the homosexuality and adultery of the pastor were exposed by an associate. The only one who's paid a price has been that associate. And you'd recognize the names if I said so. Providentially, he has been slipping in his appeal in recent years, but the matter did briefly get into the press. In other words, the moral issue is the issue people are unwilling to consider. And if you raise the moral issue, you are in trouble. And this was what Hirschfield failed to see. He saw it very clearly, very simply, as a moral problem. There was one thing to do, and that was to fire the man. But he was attacked on all sides. McClintock gives some of the scenes at the board meetings, and he has everything verified from several witnesses. And... It is horrifying to realize that men of power in this country could use such intemperate language and so utterly overlook moral issues. In fact, what they did, the only time they invoked morality was to scream at Hirschfield that he was not showing a spirit of forgiveness. Where were his principles? Didn't he believe in forgiveness? And, of course, we have that on all sides. As far back as 20 years ago, I encountered a case where a father, in a brutal assault on his daughter, still said, this is a terrible experience, but I forgive him. That's an immoral attitude. To forgive people who aren't even interested in forgiveness, who made no restitution, that's unspeakable. What indecent exposure deals with is not just Hollywood. It's the United States and the world of our time. You don't abandon the faith and expect to stay clean. And modern man gives all the earmarks of depravity and of insanity. I started off by a, a brief reference to the election. One of the insanities of the election was the passage of so many of the peace measures. No peace movement has ever pre prevented war. Never once. No peace movement that calls for disarmament has ever prevented war. You had the biggest peace movement of all history in the 30s. The 20s and 30s. It was in 1927 and 28 that virtually every nation in the world signed the Kellogg-Briand Pact, which outlawed war. And by the way, Congress has a measure that outlaws deficits was passed under Carter, and we know how much attention has been paid to that. Well, war was outlawed, and the fact is there was very real disarmament. Those of you who are old enough remember the phony war era. After the war began, when Poland collapsed, the German and French troops faced one another for many months on the Maginot Line without doing anything. Why? Because neither the Germans nor the French and the English, for that matter, were prepared for war. They were busy manufacturing so they could resume the war. 
That's what the phony war was about. Now to turn to something else. In the November issue of the Smithsonian, there is an interesting article on They're Harvesting a New Cash Crop in California Hills by Janet L. Hobson. A 1978 law requires the utilities to buy energy from private producers at top prices. And so, entrepreneurs, so-called, have begun harnessing the wind. Particularly in Altamont Pass, if you go from the valley to the San Francisco Bay Area, you will see all kinds of poles with huge fans or propellers, wind turbines. Because that is a windy area, these are used to generate power, which must then be bought by the power companies at top prices. Now, this is typical of our present attitude. Instead of allowing entrepreneurs, genuine ones, in a free market to take over and remedy needs, to supply them, we're creating an artificial situation and penalizing the power companies because they are required to pay top prices. So we're going to have all kinds of people into the business of producing expensive power. Whereas if the free market were allowed to prevail, we would have then cheap power because there would be some kind of incentive to, the, uh, to the production of cheap power. Well, now to go on to something else in a very much lighter vein. I picked this up, and I want to give this time, so I'll go back to some other things later. Uh, I picked this book up a while back, and every now and then I dig it out and enjoy it. I'm sure most of you have run across a few of these epitaphs at some time or another. It's a little book, The Last Laugh, a completely new con collection of funny old epitaphs disinterred by Gail Peterson. And uh, these are taken from actual grave markers of bygone years. And, uh, well, let's see. Here lies Captain John Conkapot. God be as good to him as you would be if he were God and you were John Conkapot. This is from Stockbridge Center, Massachusetts. And uh, this one, here lies two grandsons of John Hancock, first signer of the Declaration of Independence. Their names are respectively George M. and John H. Hancock, and their eminence hangs on their having had a grandfather. Here lies the remains of Thomas Woodhen, the most amiable of husbands and excellent of men. His real name was Woodcock, but it wouldn't come in rhyme, his widow. And this is an epitaph from 1872 in Westernville, New York. This is what I expected, but not so soon. Here lies Bernard Lightfoot, who was accidentally killed in the 45th year of his age, erected by his grateful family. This is from St. Botolph's in England. Beneath these stones repose the bones of Theodosius Grimm. He took his beer from year to year, and then his beer took him. And here's another. Born 15 September 1822, accidentally shot 4th April 1844, as a mark of affection from his brother. 
then another sacred to the memory of Anthony Drake, who died for peace and quietness sake. His wife was constantly scolding and scoffing, so he sought repose in a $12 coffin. Here lies the body of Obadiah Wilkinson and Ruth, his wife. Their warfare is accomplished. Here lies Jane Smith, wife of Thomas Smith, marble cutter. This monument was erected by her husband as a tribute to her memory and a specimen of his work. Monuments of the same style, $350. And here's an unusual one from Saratoga, New York. Farewell, dear wife, my life is past. I loved you whilst my life did last. Weep not for me, nor sorrow take but love my brother for my sake. <laughs> and here is one where they left off the final E on the fourth word for lack of space. Lord, she is thin. <laughs> for Lord, she is thine. And here a wife got in her last words, Stranger, call this not a place of fear and gloom. To me it is a pleasant spot. It is my husband's tomb. Those that knew him best deplored him most. And this one from Lincoln, Maine, of course, is one of the most famous of epitaphs, sacred to the memory of Mr. Jared Bates, who died August the 6th, 18th, his widow, aged 24, who mourns as one who can be comforted, lives at 7 Elm Street, this village, and possesses every qualification for a good wife. And this one, here lies the man Richard and Mary, his wife. Their surname was Pritchard, they lived without strife, and the reason was plain, they abounded in riches, they no care had nor pains, and the wife wore the breeches. And this one, within this grave do I do lie back to back, my wife and I. On the last trump, the air shall fill. If she gets up, I'll just lie still. This stone was raised by Sarah's Lord, not Sarah's virtues to record, for they are well known to all the town, but it was raised to keep her down. And this, an epitaph for a dentist, view this gravestone with gravity. He is filling his last cavity. Here lies a man whose crown was won by blowing in an empty gun. <laughs> And here, God works the wonder now and then. He, though a lawyer, was an honest man. Well, let me see, perhaps one or two. And this one, from South Plymouth, New York. Just these words. The Lord don't make any mistakes.
Here lies I, there's an end to my woes, and my spirit at length at ease is, with the tip of my nose and the end of my toes turned up against the roots of the daisies. Emma, daughter of Abraham and Matilda, and wife of Theodore, died August 10, 1868, 26 years, leaving five children, married too young against her father's will. Single women take warning. At rest beneath this slab of stone lies stingy Jimmy Wyatt. He died one morning just at ten and saved a dinner by it. Here Dr. Fisher lies interred, who filled the half of this churchyard. Here lies a man who did no good, and if he'd lived, he never would. Where he's gone or how he fares, nobody knows and nobody cares. And another, here lies John Hill, a man of skill, his age was five times ten. He never did good, nor ever would, had he lived as long again. Well, enough of the epitaphs. Now I'd like to uh, read just one of... Uh, the items in a book of medieval lyrics of Europe by Willard R. Trask. Select, uh, he's the editor and translator. Now, very, very often, uh, people have the wrong idea about medieval lyrics. Most people have had a taste of Dante and think everything is that deadly earnest and serious. Well, there were all kinds of ideas and thinkers, writers in the Middle Ages. And uh, as a result, medieval poetry had quite a variety, and a lot of it was very humorous. This one, for example, uh, translated without a, an attempt to make it uh, into poetry in an English form is entitled A Dream. I know a knight who the other day met a most beautiful and charming lady, and he was delighted when, putting back her cloak, he saw her body and her face and her hair. And that night when he went to sleep, he dreamed of her. Shall I tell you how he put an end to his dreams finally with another lady who was there beside him? <laughs> well, so much for that. Now to turn to one or two contemporary poems that I think are quite appealing. This one by Herman Hagdorn, an American poet of the early years of this century, entitled Doors. Like a young child to his mother's door runs eager for the welcoming embrace and finds the door shut and with troubled face calls and through sobbing calls and o'er and o'er calling storms of the panel. So before a door that will not open, sick and numb, I listen for a word that will not come, and know at last I may not enter more. Silence, and through the silence and the dark, by that closed door the distant sob of tears beats on my spirit, as on distant shores the spectral sea. And through the sobbing hark down the fair chambered corridor of years, the quiet shutting one by one of doors. And this one, very well known, but always a delight, by John Macefield. Cargoes, quinquireme of Nineveh from distant Ophir, rowing home to haven in sunny Palestine, with a cargo of ivory and apes and peacocks, sandalwood, cedarwood, and sweet white wine. Stately Spanish galleons coming from the isthmus, dipping through the tropics by the palm-green shores, with a cargo of diamonds, emeralds, amethysts, topazes, and cinnamon, and gold, my doors. Dirty British coaster with a salt-caked 
smokestack, budding through the channel in the mad March days, the cargo of tyne coal, railroads, pig lead, firewood, ironware, and cheap tin trays. And this by Siegfried Sassoon is an unforgettable one. Back in the 20s when I was a boy, it was one that was very often memorized in school. It's sad because it expresses the radiant hope on Armistice Day, 1918, that everyone felt. A foolish hope because it was a humanistic one and was dashed. But Siegfried Sassoon wrote this poem, Everyone Sang, on Armistice Day, 1918, in the expectation that the war to end wars had just ended and world peace had come. Everyone suddenly burst out singing, and I was filled with such delight as prisoned birds must find in freedom, winging wildly across the white orchards and dark green fields on, on, and out of sight. Everyone's voice was suddenly lifted, and beauty came like the setting sun, my heart was shaken with tears, and horror drifted away. Oh, but every one was a bird, and the song was wordless. The singing will never be done. But the singing is over. And men have the problems that they had before World War I intensified, because they are looking for salvation through the state through humanistic statism. And as a result, the disaster increases because their expectations are wrong. And there is no turning this around without a change from a humanistic faith to a biblical one. This is why we are looking forward to our Journal of Christian Reconstruction, which will deal with Christian Reconstruction such as it is taking place in one area after another. What churches are doing. The issue after that, we're going to deal with what's happening in the business world, then what's happening in the political realm. What is being done by Christians to put us back on a biblical course of action. This is the hope of the future not Armistice Day 1918 or VJ Day or any such thing. The political hope is a failure. And right now we had better turn to the godly answer because there is disaster ahead. August 1983, Social Security is supposed to be bankrupt. By the end of the decade, Medicare is supposed to be bankrupt. Well, I don't know about the dating, but to all practical intent, that bankruptcy is here. It's only a question of time before it shows up. The bankruptcy is here because our society today is morally and religiously bankrupt. But there is an answer developing it's a biblical answer. Some years ago I used an analogy to point up the future and what it's going to be to people who are discouraged. I said when you look at a city skyline, you see the big buildings that are there already. You don't see the buildings that are going to be there tomorrow because they're simply excavations, holes in the ground right now. Well, those holes in the ground have been a digging for some time, and the buildings are now going up. So while I believe that we are in the great disaster area of history, we're also in the time of the most sensational and phenomenal rebuilding that the world will ever see. And I'm looking forward to the years ahead. I know they're going to see fearful disasters, but tremendous prospects for rebuilding 
and a better world than we have yet seen. Well, thank you for listening. It's been good to be with you again, and I'm looking forward to our next session two weeks from now. Thank you and goodbye.